Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. In November, Opportunity DB hosted OZ Pitch Day Fall 2021, a live two-day Opportunity Zone investor matchmaking event. What follows today is the audio version of an educational panel from that event titled How to Evaluate Opportunity Zone Deals. To view this panel in video format and to learn more about the panelists, check out the show notes page for today's episode. You can find those at opportunitydb.com/podcast. And just look for the episode titled, How to Evaluate Opportunity Zone Deals. And to play any of the recordings from OZ Pitch Day on demand, head over to ozpitchday.com. Enjoy. Welcome to the How to Evaluate Opportunity Zone Deals panel. Real quick, we could just go around the room here. We're just going in alphabetical order. So Greg, I'll start with you. If you could just quickly introduce yourself. G's at the top of the list for once. Uh, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Jimmy. Nice to see you again. And uh, real quick, so we can jump right into this. My name is Greg Genovese. I'm the CEO of USG Realty Capital. I'm the CEO of our uh, fund, Investor's Choice Opportunity Zone Fund. This is our fourth fund since 2018. And I'm happy to be here to help out any way I can. So thank you. Fantastic. And Gordon at Plant Moran, please. Yeah, great. Uh, appreciate you inviting me here, Jimmy. My name is Gordon Goldie. I'm a partner with Plant Moran. We're a top 13 or so CPA firm with regional offices, mostly in the Midwest, uh, the Great Lakes states, and, and also Colorado. I work with my practice, uh, basically helping clients that are putting together real estate projects or business expansions, utilizing incentives. Work probably spent about half my time with Opportunity Zones the last several years and and still uh, work a lot with the, the, the New Markets Tax Credit and Federal Historic Tax Credits and other incentives. Fantastic. And Jill? Great to be with you here this afternoon. So, Jimmy, appreciate all the work that you do. I know you're on the forefront with Opportunity DB. And Greg and Gordon, good to be with you. So, Jill Homan, I run Javelin 19 Investments. My background is really 15 plus years of real estate acquisitions and development focused on emerging neighborhoods. Spent the last three plus years, I guess it's four maybe, but really as soon as the legislation passed with Opportunity Zones focused on utilizing this tax incentive, we work in three verticals. The first of which is we are doing some development in Opportunity Zones. So, for example, we're, we partnered a co-development partner on a student housing project where we raised $20 million of OZ equity with our partner, Rise, and the project delivered this summer. Where we spent a lot of our time is actually we're a registered investment advisor representative. So we work with investors who've had very significant capital events. And we help them allocate their capital. So we underwrite individual assets for those investors who would like to go into a single asset fund. And then we also cover the market in terms of multi-asset funds. So we cover about 15 of the largest funds and help investors determine which is the most appropriate fund for what they're trying to achieve for their goals. And then thirdly, we work with two opportunity funds. One is a fund based out of the West Coast called Pinnacle. 
And the other is uh, Fortuitous Partners, which is a sports anchored opportunity fund. So they're both doing some really exciting things on the fund side. And then we're providing really underwriting and team help for the projects and the funds. Yeah, that's great. John, I'm familiar with both those funds, Jeff and Brett, both of those guys uh, doing incredible work with those two funds there. So I think the vast majority of the attendees in the audience today are likely, I might describe them as high net worth, self-directed, accredited investors. I don't know, maybe we've got a couple of advisors on the call. Maybe we've got one or two family office reps, but primarily they're folks who are interested in probably investing in a third party qualified opportunity fund. We may also have some ladies and gentlemen on the call who may have enough capital that they're interested in structuring their own captive QOF. But whatever the case may be, I really want to focus today on how to evaluate opportunity zone deals and how to evaluate opportunity zone funds. Gordon, I want to turn to you first, just for some really high level advice that you might give to such taxpayers investors, potential investors who are considering investing in opportunity zones, what should they be looking at? What type of advice would you give them at a high level? Uh, What sort of questions should they be asking? That's a great question. I think everybody would agree that the most important thing is that you really need to look at the investment itself. You you can't let the tax tail wag dog. And I hate to say that as a tax person, because I love the tax side of things, but the benefits themselves are not going to make a bad deal, a good deal. And everybody's probably heard that a million times. So I apologize for saying it again, but I think it's really most important that you you make sure whatever deal you're investing in is going to be a good deal, at least to the extent that you can. So obviously there's a lot of deal due diligence and, and such that goes into that. And Jill and Greg are way more suited to address those types of things than I am, but I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention them. The other thing too is to, to look at it in the perspective of your entire portfolio. You sell a business and, and have a liquidity event, and there's a lot of uh, appeal to being able to defer the taxes from that entire liquidity event by investing into an opportunity fund. But but does it make sense to put all your eggs in opportunity fund baskets? And particularly if it's all real estate, for example, having all your wealth or a vast majority of it tied up into real estate may not make sense. So it's important to look at how much of your wealth makes sense to put into these types of assets. Those are kind of the high level things. But from a, a more tax oriented side of things, part of it depends on whether or not the fund you're looking to invest in is kind of building in the tax benefits into the rate of return that they're pitching to you. So to the extent that you're really accepting a lower rate of return from the real estate itself, because it's going to be enhanced by the opportunity zone tax benefits, then I think it gets to be important to uh, really understand uh, those benefits and hopefully either be able to get information from the fund that you're looking to invest in as to benefits, including things like the the effects of the depreciation deductions in a real estate deal, when you might be able to get to take those deductions, uh, you know, which gets into technical things like when you're going to end up having basis from debt and things like that. So I'll avoid getting too technical there. But if you're happy with the cash returns projected from the opportunity fund and you don't feel like you're necessarily taking a a discount, uh, you know, because you're expecting to get benefits from the opportunity zone and the the opportunity zone is really gravy on top that then maybe you don't need to spend as much time focusing on those tax aspects. But to the extent that you really are are needing to get those opportunities on tax benefits in order to make the return that you really make it worth your while to invest in this project, then you really need to spend the time understanding 
a lot of the technical nuances of the fund and and how it's structured and and making sure that they fit your particular situation in terms of being able to you know realize those benefits. Fantastic. Well, Gordon, you mentioned returns briefly, so I wanted to share this slide, which I shared yesterday during my OZ 101 presentation at the beginning of day one. Jill, you may recognize this yeah, slide. I stole, it, I stole it from you. I did cite you though at the bottom. Yeah. Of that. Walk us through this and tell us a little bit more about how the Opportunity Zone benefit can help juice after-tax returns. Yeah. And I think Gordon hit on a lot of fantastic points. Really the takeaway with the slide is that when an investor, if they were to think about what the benefits are to them, it has between about 40 to 50% higher after tax returns by investing in an opportunity, using the opportunity zone structure versus not using the opportunity zone structure. And so that's the difference between the blue line and the red line or these higher after tax benefits. But the next question is, is an investor taking a commensurate increase in risk in order to get these additional benefits? And that's where I would say it depends. And that's where you get into the evaluation of the opportunities. And so when we work with investors who've had gains from, you know, call it from a million to a couple hundred million, what we really work on, I think a great point is fundamentally an opportunity zone investment is a tax incentivized real estate private equity investment. And I'm only focusing on the real estate side of it, you know, and so it it is traditionally an illiquid investment. And so we have a lot of conversations about, you know, there is a tax bill coming due in tax year um, 2026. And so an investor needs to anticipate that and then needs to look at this investment in terms of the overall um, portfolio construction of what they're trying to do. Um, So some of what we work with investors is looking at what is the experience of the funds? What are the fees? So how, how are are everybody, how is everybody being compensated? And I would just, for example, just describe the marketplace as you have a choice between investing in a multi-asset fund vehicle with an allocator fund or investing in a developer-led fund or a single asset fund. So there's pros and cons with the choices. If you invest in a multi-asset fund where that fund manager takes those dollars and invests it into multiple deals, you're paying two layers of fees. You're paying the fund manager and then you're paying the developers their promote. The pro is that you're investing with an institutional fund manager who should optimize the time, the point at which they're making an investment into the deal. And and that should reduce some of the risk associated with investing in a development deal because they're able to bring in all of the capital into a development deal. They also have rights in these operating agreements, which allow them to optimize when they come in. So that's the pro, but the con is two layers of fees. The alternative is to invest in either a single asset fund or invest in a developer-led. The pro of that is you're paying one layer of fund fees. The con of that is you're investing with a developer. And so there's not an institution overseeing the investor and and really on top of the developer. So say costs go up by 25% and the deal no longer works, there's not that kind of control in place. And so it really is, you know, there's not a perfect solution, but it's about understanding the fees um, that people are making along the way. So investors can really make an informed decision. And, you know, while most a lot of institutions are trying to solve for that deal gross return of call it 14 or 15% IRR. And then you look at where, you know, after the fee load is taking away, you know, maybe an investor is at a 10 net IRR and in just understanding, you know, it are these 
400 to 500 basis points that the investor is paying, is that provide for risk mitigation? Is that appropriate? And so those are the things that that we talk a lot about is understanding the fees and then understanding the underlying deals and, and the returns as well. Fantastic. Greg, I'm going to bring you in here in a second, but first I want to just interrupt real quick to say that we are going to leave some time at the end of this segment for some live Q&A. So if you have any questions, please do use the Q&A tool in your Zoom toolbar. And by the way, we have Gordon Goldie here. He's a CPA partner at Plant Moran. Most CPAs don't really get Opportunity Zones or they, they might not fully understand it. Gordon does. So if you want to play, Gordon, sorry, I'm, I'm kind of uh, putting you on the spot here, but we may uh, get a chance to play Stump the Accountant. If you have any really <laughs> tough accounting questions, <laughs> Gordon's here to save the day potentially. So please yeah. don't hesitate to ask any questions. I'd love to do some Q&A toward the end of this segment. So anyways, back to how to evaluate opportunities on deals. Greg, I want to bring you in now, uh, turn to you. One of the reasons why I invited you on this panel, Greg, is because your fund, the Investor's Choice Fund, has an investment thesis of really investing in different real estate projects all over the country. So I'm curious, how do you evaluate the different real estate projects that you decide to go into? I'm also curious to know, what does your pipeline look like? How many projects do you turn down versus how many projects do you accept? And what's the process for getting involved there? Just just tell tell us everything you can about your evaluation process. Sure. And I'll try to be succinct um, and right on cue. I don't know you to be succinct, but go ahead. (laughs) This happens on every podcast. Of course, my phone starts ringing right about the time I have to start uh, talking here. But the ringer's off, but the vibrator's going, so it's bothering me. But listen, anyways, pleasure to be here. Thanks again. Gordon and Jill made some great points, but and they actually made a lot of points, so I can't really address each one. But one I want to hone in on before I get into how to evaluate, at least in our opinion, is something Jill said about oversight. Because we're not the same as we were three or four years ago in the sense of I've always been a big proponent. You know, our first three funds were single asset projects. I've always believed in single asset. Let the investor evaluate the program. You can get a tax opinion. You can get all kinds of studies. They can kick the tire. What we found during COVID, in fact, you know, as you know, our our first program outside of Seattle was named the top fund in the country by Globe Street and Real Asset Advisors. So we're really proud of that, not strictly because of the project. And so Gordon had said, aptly said it was about the project. I like to go a step above that because in 32 years of being in real estate securities, I can tell you that I've seen deals that have gone wrong. And in about 80% of the deals that go wrong, it's because of the sponsor, not because of the project. So who you're investing with, our first pillar as far as evaluating is really who are you investing with? Because when things work out, everybody goes, I love that deal in downtown Sacramento. When it goes bad, all of a sudden they're going to go, and I'll just use your name, Jimmy, because I don't want to call anybody else out. But they'll go, hey, that deal that Jimmy Atkinson did. So first and foremost, number one is who are you investing with? And in doing your, your homework there, their track record, their expertise in the industry. The second part is what we found during COVID was the vast majority of these opportunity funds were developer driven. And so we had a situation where a lot of larger projects, 120, 130, $40 million projects, they need 50, 60 million to build them. They're now tied off for a long period of time. And what a lot of people don't know, and I'm sure Jill does because she does consulting work, just because a project's tied off because the state won't let you work on it doesn't mean you're not paying every month for either developer fees or insurance and all these other things that go on. So it doesn't have to be COVID, but it's all about mitigating the client's risk or the investor's risk 
for a long period of time, building a portfolio that can withstand one, two, maybe even three recessions, or as I like to call them, tie-off points. And so we were doing larger pro- I'm sorry, we were doing larger projects. And the reason we came up with this consultative national platform with Investor's Choice, and it's not to pitch the, that necessarily, it's to say, look, we have a limited amount of time now between now and 2020, the end of 2026. You go to the local developers who have expertise. You go to the opportunity zones that have the, the best risk-mitigated returns that are accretive to the local community. You co-partner, which is another term that Jill used, which I love, because by co-partnering, you eliminate the conflict of interest risk that could come with something that is purely developer-driven. So one, you had asked who you're investing with. Our second pillar is what is the actual fund structure and what is the investor asset management focus and the fees associated with that. You hear a lot about vertical integration in industries because just saying the word is supposed to be just a good thing. Sometimes vertical integration is good and sometimes it isn't. We're not a huge fan of, of pure vertical integration because I don't give my money to my asset manager, my wealth advisor and go, please put it in your own bank account and then tell me how good you do with it. So we're big believers in co-managing with the developer partner. And then we get paid and our job is to be the advocate for the investor. That's the second pillar. The third is the project. Now you're into the project. What, is it a local developer that has expertise? What's the timeline? How quickly is the cash flow? Which is another thing I think Gordon had, had talked about. How quickly does that cash flow get turned on? And are you baking out, not baking in the returns that come be strictly because it is in an opportunity zone, evaluate it strictly on the project itself. And then lastly, our fourth pillar as far as evaluation is execution of the pro forma in the business plan with third party oversight. And that's what we advocate for is pro- we advocate, for, we're not just about ourselves. We advocate for any project, any fund out there that is willing to segregate their compensation, co-manage with the developer partners so there's checks and balances. And thirdly, making sure there's some sort of third-party oversight. And then I'll just throw another one in there because we're big on that, is doing social impact studies in each and every one of these projects so that the investors can, can see quantitatively how well the projects are doing. So we wrap that all up and we, that's why we structured our new platform to look at smaller projects, the, the 20 and 30 and $40 million projects. They only need five, eight, nine, maybe up to $10 million of equity. Quicker timelines, you can manage the process better. And if you ever do get into a situation of either recession or tie off again, you now have the ability to mitigate that risk. And I think Gordon or Jill, I forget who said, costs go up by 20 or 25%. You also want to work it out where your developers, because you're bringing the money, the developers are taking on the risk of any cost overruns, and the developers are actually putting out the guarantees for the financing. Third, financing needs to be in place before the investors make their investment, not, hey, we're going to go out and find the permanent financing sometime later. I think the programs that people need to look at are the ones that can bake out as much inherent risk as possible in as far as they can in a development deal and do the evaluation based on those four pillars. I didn't know if I'd get another chance to talk, so I thought I'd throw it all out. Oh, that <laughs> so was, thank you. 
That was great, Greg. Not succinct, but very thorough. <laughs> that, that was me succinct. <laughs> yeah, it was you succinct. I've, I've heard you go on much longer than that before. All good stuff all the time, but you know. So we've got, we've probably got another nine or 10 minutes before we need to wrap this up. Oh man, Gordon, we got a ton of stump the accountant <laughs> questions in the yeah. Q&A. So I'm going to get to that in a minute. But first I want to ask Jill one more question. Jill, part of the services you provide at Javelin 19 Investments is that you do underwriting on a lot of different opportunity zone deals. I think primarily real estate, correct me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. What does your process look like, at least at a high level? Can you can you describe how do you determine how good or bad a deal is? What does that underwriting process look like, particularly for, for an opportunity zone project? Yeah. And so when we're underwriting individual deals, you know, I've spent my career over the last 15 plus years underwriting individual assets. And then when I was at my previous company, a real estate development, I managed all the underwriting and acquisitions of all of our development projects in emerging neighborhoods. And And I said it was a firm where we ate what we killed, which was basically there was no hiding. So once we turned the underwriting over to the folks who are building the building, I still had to live with um, the underwriting because I was involved with the development projects. So, you know, really you have two components of pro forma. You have what it costs to build and then you have what you think you can make in terms of rent. And so what we're looking at is, you know, we've been able to pull together um, some great data about the cost of construction. We're really focused heavily on multifamily. Um, we think it's a great asset class about where we are this, you know, at this point in this economic expansion, even including COVID. And so we look at the um, the multifamily. We try to peel back where the fees are. You know, whether there's um, a land value is up increased in value on um, that the developers add added some value there. So we try to just unpack that. Was there a land lift? You know, where's all the fees? We look at the, the cost and look at it across projects. Does it make sense? And then we also look on um, the revenue and, and operating statement side in terms of comparing it across competitive properties and then also, you know, the expenses as well. We've pulled together great databases across all the different markets that we're underwriting to. And then, you know, we're looking at the Cap rates in the current marketplace, we're escalating those by five to 10 basis points per year. And that's generally what a lot of the institutions are doing as well. But fundamentally, what we're trying to do is solve between 100 to 150 basis points spread over current cap rates. And so if, if you imagine if the building was sitting here today, what would the building trade for? And that's the untrended return on cost. What would be the NOI? And then what would be the total cost to build it? And that gives you your untrended return on cost. And then you compare it to the current cap rate. So meaning if a building, if your untrended return on cost is a five and a half percent in the market, you have new construction that are trading in comparable locations of a four cap, that's 150 basis point spread. And that's really what we think is adequate compensation for the development risk. If a project is yielding, say, a five and a quarter cap rate and new construction trades for five, then I would much rather go buy new construction. You wouldn't get the OZ benefits, sure. But from strictly a risk standpoint, we don't think the capital is being compensated well enough for the development risk uh, if you're only getting you know, 25 basis points. So that's really one of the things we look at. We look at from a gross deal return standpoint, you know, between a 14 and 15 IRR. And then we also look at the, you know, the equity multiple. You know, I joke, you can't spend IRR 
And so you can end up with like a fancy IRR of an 18. And then if you have your deals like 1.5, I'm just using an extreme equity multiple, then I'd rather have a deal that's a 12 IRR and a three equity multiple because, you, you know, that's really what you spend. And then there's stuff that we see that comes up. Some folks trend rents at three and expenses at two. And it's just our view is, is look, if there's this is an inflationary marketplace and we think expenses are going to go up and we think it's a hard argument to make that one, the one that you want to go up is going to go up more than the one you don't want to go up. And so we think it's either you trend them both or you you know hold rents and then trend expenses and then trend them both. So those are things that we look at. And then we also just try to be think um, that interest rates are going to go up. So we do model in uh, refinance, but we are adding basis points to what the refinance looks like as well. So those are things that we really look at. And and then we stress models because we're looking at what are their returns really driven by. And what we want are projects where the value creation comes from building a building and creating the cash flow instead of the value creation coming from assuming a great cap rate sale. Because if the whole deal is assumed, is is hinges on super low interest rates at refinance and a super aggressive cap rate, then the value creation did not come from building a building and operating it. And that's really what we're fundamentally looking for is great assets in good locations that the value creation comes from building great buildings and operating that cash flow. So a few thoughts. Before you get over to Gordon, I just want to echo something that Jill just said. Couldn't agree more. These valuations need to be based on NOI. In fact, even decompressing the cap rate in your pro formas over that 10-year hold is really an important element. Don't count on cap rate compression over the next 10 years. So I just want to echo that what Jill just said, there was very, very valuable information. So I just wanted to put that out there. So I agree. Well, and I've been, I've been saying cap rates are going to go up for the last 10 years, but at some point I'm going to be right. You're so going to be right. Go. We, we all, <laughs> exactly, exactly. But that's an excellent point. You can't just look at an executive summary and see a number and go, great. It's how did you get to the number? So anyways, go ahead. And ultimately, these investors have harvested capital gains. So they've sold their company, you know, sold their business. And the last thing they want to do is just invest in a deal that is just not rooted in the fundamentals. And that's what we try to do is kind of tease through what what are the fundamental elements of what makes this deal work. So couldn't agree more. And now, Gordon, you get all the hard questions. So just start start quoting, you know, section 752 and all these tax code sections. Yeah, it does look like all the questions that came in are for Gordon. (laughs) We'll get to those in a second. So I I did just get word that the Caliber Funds breakout session just closed down. So I think we have a lot of people rejoining us from that. And we're going to get going with the Hall Venture Partners fund pitch in just a few more minutes here. We might go over a little bit this segment. We've got some, we've got a little bit of buffer though. So that's fine. So Gordon, I'll start you off with an easy one. We had a couple questions about about the 180 day deadline. When does that start? When does it end? Depending on what type of entity you received the gain through. So I'll ask Frank's version of the question here. He says he has a number of hedge fund investments, which report on a calendar fiscal year. He's heard two different versions of when the window closes for OZ investments to offset the capital gains in those investments. One is that it's 180 days after the end of the fiscal year, i.e. around June 30th. The second is it's 180 days after the tax filing deadline, i.e. around September 15th. I think it's September 11th, uh, to be specific, which is correct. Yes. Is they're both correct? Yes. Exactly. (laughs) And there's actually a third option too, which is 180 days from the date of the sale that 
the pass-through entity that's reporting the gain to you realize the the, the gain. And, and so you, you have to pick one of those three. I guess the important thing I'd say is that for any particular gain, you can only pick one of those three. And so I don't think you have the flexibility to put some of your investment in during a 180-day period starting the day of the sale and another within the 180-day period starting on the due date of the return. It's one or the other. And so you've got to figure out what's best for you. And, and that could also result in a blackout period because you know you, you could have, let's say, if you had the sale occurred on, let's say, March 1 of 2021, so you could pick 180 days from that, you know, which would end somewhere before the end of the year, right? But then your next 180-day period that you could pick wouldn't start till December 31st. So there's going to be some period during the last couple of months of the year where it's, I guess I'd call it a blackout period where you can't invest during that period. But then, then after that, now you can basically up until, you know, September, like you mentioned, September 11th. And that's available for taxpayers who recognize a gain via a Schedule K-1. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, if the gain is from an asset you sold yourself, then you only have one choice, which is the date of the sale that you recognize the gain. Right. Gotcha. Question from Joseph here. Can OZ investments be moved into a trust and retain the tax benefits? What if it's a marital trust? Really, the root of that answer is that you know there are certain situations where a transfer of an opportunity fund investment triggers what's called an inclusion event, which would require you basically to recognize the deferred gain and lose all the opportunity zone benefits. There are uh, quite a few exceptions to that rule that a transfer triggers those an inclusion event and a transfer to a trust could be one of those exceptions. It really depends on the structure. You know, it's probably, I, I you know, don't have any time to go into all the details there, but the general kind of estate planning type of transfers are generally okay. But, you know, it, obviously you'll want to verify that before you actually make such a transfer. But generally speaking, you can do that sort of thing. I have, by the way, posted links to Greg's and Jill's and Gordon's websites where you can find out more about them and get in touch with, with them and their teams. If, if you have any follow-up questions you'd like to ask any of the panelists today, if we don't get to your question, I've got two questions that I see here that I remember seeing yesterday and we didn't really get a chance to answer them, or maybe we didn't answer them well enough. Hefe asks, if you move states between now and 2026, in which state do you pay the deferred state tax to in the tax year 2026 when you recognize that gain? Is it one or both or, or, or what? Good question too. And you know, I guess the first thing is you have to look and see what the state that you're involved in, whether it's the state that the game was recognized in or the state you live in, how do they recognize the opportunity zone statute? Because some states have decoupled from the opportunity zone statute and they don't follow that. And so that, you know, that's one thing you need to pay attention to is, you know, what what does your state do? So for example, California is one of the more infamous ones that that don't follow the opportunity zone statute. But I guess to specifically answer that question, I I think it, it depends on the state, but certainly you could end up paying tax. I mean, most and the default tends to be that you pay tax in the state of your residence. And, and then you get a credit on in that state's tax for any tax you pay to a different state. And so a different state taxes you for that gain because it was related to, let's say, real estate investment in that state. And you end up paying tax in, in that state where the property was located. Then you can get, you get a credit against your home state's tax. So, you know, technically you, you have to pick up that gain on your personal return in your state of residence, but then you might get a credit against the tax for that. So it really depends on the, on the state and what their rules are, but that's kind of generally speaking how, how it would work. And this is why you really want to hire an accountant like Gordon. (laughs) So, I mean, if nothing else, because it's so important to understand the character of gain and the timing and then these questions. So, yeah, absolutely. 
and we're happy to have you here today, Gordon. I think we got we got time for one or two more questions. What happens if the Opportunity Zone investor dies before the end of the ten year holding period? Generally speaking, the the estate planning documents are going to kick in, and and the investment's going to transfer according to those or, or, or probate whatever you know if there's not estate planning documents in in place. But generally speaking, as long as the you know the heirs take uh, you know a step in the shoes of of the person who died, they would become responsible for the deferred gain and would be entitled to the opportunity zone benefit. If they were to transfer the asset, that that would be an inclusion event and it would trigger the acceleration of the gain and and a loss of the remaining opportunity zone benefits. So it really kind of depends on what happens with the asset after the death. But generally speaking, the the death itself won't trigger a loss of the benefits, but a transfer after that. Jimmy, do you mind if I just, I'm just going to take 25 seconds to dovetail on this, although I'm not a CPA. But I think the question regarding somebody dies, this is a big one because part of evaluating a program really has to do with the exit strategies designed in the program itself. So you've got, you have the legal and the tax side of it, which is what happens when someone dies, the heirs are going to get that at a stepped up basis. But now you have to look at what sort of liquidity provisions does the fund actually have during that time price. So you really want to look for a fund that has advantageous liquidity provisions for the investor during that time period. Also, some people want to get out right at 10 years. Some people want to stay in. And so you need to look at what's their exit strategy structure and what's their liquidity. And I think that's an important element on top of just looking at it from a tax standpoint with step up and basis. All right. Well, thank you to my panelists. I do have to wrap things up now and, and move along, but wanted to thank each one of you, Greg, Gordon, Jill, Thank you so much for being here with us today and participating on this panel. I, once again, I posted links to uh, contact information and websites for our three panelists today. If you have any follow-up questions you'd like to ask, I didn't get to all of the questions for Gordon. I'm going to try to address some of those in the Q&A and in the chat over the next few minutes, and I'll try to forward on any really tough ones that stumped me onto Gordon, and hopefully yep. we, can, we can get those questions answered down the road here. Appreciate no all three of you for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks for listening to this panel from OZ Pitch Day. As always, I have show notes on today's episode available at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And there you'll find links to all of the resources that my panelists discussed on today's episode. And you can also find the video version of the panel there. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back soon with another episode. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.